In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, please be seated. Okay, let's get it out of the way. What's a Septuagesima? Yeah, it's a word we have not heard in a while in this church, so it's good to remind ourselves about the Jesimas, the season sometimes called pre-Lent. This week and the next two weeks, prepare ourselves to prepare ourselves for Easter. A double preparation. Well, who would ever think of preparing oneself to prepare oneself? The church does. Because the church knows very well that it's good to be ready to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord. That is why this night and for the next two weeks, we're going to be getting ready to get ready. Next week, as the Lord wills, we'll come back and we will hear the parable of the soils from Luke chapter 8 and focus on the word alone doing the work. I like to think there's a little bit of faith alone in there as well. Two weeks from now, we'll be back just before Ash Wednesday to hear the healing of the blind man in Luke chapter 18. And that is about Christ alone. Next week, by the way, is sexagesima. And two weeks from now, quinquagesima. Jesima basically means days. So septua, 70. Sexa, 60. Quinqua, 50. So we call the first Sunday in Lent, we could, quadragesima. 40 days before Easter, not counting Sundays. And those, by the way, is, that's, those numbers are rough numbers. They're not exact numbers. So that's the whole reason for Septuagesima, Sexagesima, and Quinquagesima. So if next week, Lord willing, we have Word alone, and two weeks from now we have Christ alone, what do we have tonight? Grace alone. How do you write a sermon whose text is something I preach about every week. What more can be said then about God's grace? Grace is free. Grace goes one way from God to us, and it is not so much something that is stored up by us, but that is poured out on us. Grace, beloved, is also the most offensive thing going today in the Christian church. How can something that is a basic theme in the Bible be so loved yet also so offensive at the same time? The reason why is because neither you nor I are in control of God's grace. Our heavenly father is the giver. So you should know whose grace it is. God's grace, not my grace, not your grace. His love for a sinner like you and like me goes one way. Then your love for him and what he does in Jesus Christ flows first from his unmerited and undeserved love for you. That's what those who bellyache about bearing the burden of the day and the scorching heat in our Lord's parable do not want to understand. They think they know how grace works. They don't know a thing about it. Those poor souls. But take a close look at those poor souls for just a moment. Look at the ones down in front. If you look very carefully at them, they look a lot like you. And the Lutheran ones that are in the way back, where the Lutherans like to sit and stand, if I look at them very closely, I see myself in their image. 
instances like this one in our Lord's parable of the laborers in the vineyard is why it's good that we take this moment to be reminded what Holy Scripture says about grace, the undeserved, unmerited favor of God over sinners. We know that God's grace can be described with the adjective amazing because it's perhaps one of your favorite hymns. In fact, this is the year of the 250th anniversary of the writing of Amazing Grace. We know that grace is free and boundless because one of the communion hymns for this weekend is By Grace I'm Saved, Grace Free and Boundless. We know that St. Paul is a preacher of grace because he sure does spend a lot of time in all of his epistles talking to the churches about this one-way love. And when grace hits us right between the eyes in the way Jesus does with his words to us tonight in Matthew chapter 20, well, we don't like it when he hits us between the eyes with grace. Twelve hours of hard work in a vineyard receives the same pay as one hour measly hour of work, unfair labor grievance waiting to happen. Wait till they hear about it at the union hall. Did you stop to think, however, that the laborers who entered the vineyard at the 11th hour had their chance to work? Same for those at the third, the sixth, and the ninth hours. You would think that they, they would be the ones to make the first move. You would think they would have made that move many hours before the master of the house came out to them and said, want to work? Neither of these options occurred. That's because grace does not start with you. Grace starts with a gracious God who sends his workers into the marketplace to bring people into the kingdom of grace. He seeks you. He finds you. He is relentless in his search for you. But why can't I make the first move? After all, isn't ingenuity a hallmark of the American way? Grace, beloved, is counter to the American way. You cannot be ingenious, you see, when you are dead. We just sang, none can remove sin's poison dart or purify our guileful heart. So deep is our corruption. The offer to work does not begin with you because you are poisoned, guileful, and corrupt by nature. If the offer began with you, if you made the first move, not grace. For you see, a cadaver cannot work and play in the vineyard. A cadaver can only lay there hard as a carp. So you lay there, dead to sin, until God in Christ Jesus raises you up by covering you with his blood and his righteousness. Again, we sang, Your grace alone, dear Lord, I plead. Your death is now my life indeed, for you have paid my ransom. The anger over not getting paid more now is about merit, not grace. In the civil realm, merit does have its own place. How much education you have, how much experience that you have determines your pay grade and your place at work. It also determines whether or not you're going to work certain holidays. In the spiritual realm, however, everybody gets the same thing. The gift of eternal life in Jesus Christ. Let's take for an example about how grace works and how foolish we sound when we gripe about grace, one of the most beloved moments 
in the Christian life. And we hear the story from time to time about it, the so-called deathbed conversion. I've been a pastor for a little over 20 years, and I've never had the pleasure yet of having a deathbed conversion. However, I do know of one, and it happened in my home congregation uh, almost 30 years ago. A man who happened to be the father of one of our members, and this member, by the way, was recently catechized back in those times. Her dad was dying in the hospital, did not have long to live, and the pastor was called out in the middle of the night, like pastors do get called out in the middle of the night. And he went to the man's deathbed, and the man was ready to see Jesus. But he'd never been baptized. Never really went to church his whole life. But when you stare at death face to face, things change quickly. And the pastor said, is there water here? Because he confessed Jesus as Lord. Yes, there's water here. They ran and got water and he was baptized. And about 15 to 30 minutes later, he fell asleep in our Lord. Oh, we love stories like that. And by the way, his wife... When her daughter went through instruction, she was always saying in the back whenever the preacher came in, you'll never get me to join that church. It wasn't too long after her husband died that she also went through instruction and at the age of 85, 85 was baptized. That was one of the coolest days I've ever been in a church in my life. We love deathbed conversions. Fantastic. Thanks be to God. They waited 85 years and they finally came around. But if we follow those who work in this parable that Jesus tells, when we hear about the 85-year-old dying 15 to 30 minutes after they're baptized, we should go, shame on him. I have had to sweat it out all my life as a Christian. I've had to put up with the stuff that the devil's thrown at me, the world's thrown at me, my own sinful, stupid self is thrown at me. I've had to bust my butt throughout all my life having to deal with all this, and he backs his way into paradise? No. No. 